You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Welcome to The Crisis Beat, Episode 8, and it's May 6th, 2023. My name is Brady Wood, and I'm a business owner and public relations professional. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life is the chair of medicine at McMaster University. Mark, how are you doing? It's been a while since we were last here. I'm great, Brady. We've had a long break between episodes. You were pretty busy with some stuff and I've been extraordinarily busy. I'm just emerging from a hodgepodge of activities which have consumed all of my attention for the last couple of months and looking forward to the middle and end of next week when I actually emerge from the wilderness of being extraordinarily busy. (laughs) It's been tiring and I'm looking forward to recovering next weekend after really working as hard as I want to, which has led to us not having the time to actually do any more episodes, which has been regrettable regrettable because there's been a lot of stuff in the news, some of it directly related back to stuff that we were talking about. Absolutely. Now, you've been on a long a long thread of travel and a lot of exciting activity, and me too, but yeah, it's, it's great to be back in the chair. So in this episode, we're going to explore the unique challenges and opportunities that COVID-19 has presented for public health communications. This is a bit of a bramble and a thicket and a sticky wicket in the sense that COVID-19 communications are largely corporate and public health corporate communications, but they've developed a, there's an obvious urgency to the problem, the urgencies of communicating quickly. And then on top of that, we've got to layer in all of the political involvement in this discussion. So it's been a very divisive issue as well. What I think we want to try to distill, and I think it's a tough gambit, is the crisis communications best practices that have been particularly relevant and effective in COVID-19 if we can. So let's look at topics like transparency, consistency, empathy, two-way communication, flexibility, collaboration with the public. We'll also look at some real-world examples of how these practices have been applied. But I think the trick will also be to say, how do we look at the political division and how that's affected the discourse and complicated things? So we're looking at a kind of non-crisis crisis case today that is very rich and nuanced. Um, So join us as we delve into this topic. And in the meantime, why don't we start, Mark, as we usually do, by talking about breaking news. So what are a couple of the news stories that, uh, that have piqued our interest in the last couple of weeks? Well, today is the coronation of King Charles III, an event which a small fraction of the Canadian and a larger fraction of the UK population seems to be interested in, and a big chunk of people watch it. And I turned it on this morning and saw many, many hats walking down a road and thought, that's about all of this I can tolerate. My admin assistant, who I've worked with very closely for a very long time, got up at 3.30 and had all the British stuff up and was watching it with great enthusiasm all day long. So, you know, it's a it's a very interesting thing. I, I, it's relevant to this discussion only insofar as, I think maybe in the last episode or a while ago, we're talking about different approaches to scandal and to adverse news and that the British royal family can take kind of a unique perspective on it. And and I think the coronation is actually just absolutely typical of that. And it's typical of that because despite all the news about dysfunctional family relations and the sort of anachronistic nature of the entire enterprise, they rallied this enormous show today and got hundreds of millions of TV viewers around the world. Um, As someone said, it's amazing they can actually put on that much pomp and circumstance because some guy's having a metal hat put on his head. But (laughs) in fact, that's what it was all about because he was effectively made the king when Queen Elizabeth died. And this is all just for show. 
effectively. Mm-hmm. In fact, it is all just show. So amazing that they can pull this all off, that Harry took a break from his privacy tour to show up, apparently, although I don't think he was on the balcony. And the whole family seems to have rallied to support uh, this event, which is quite interesting to watch. Yeah. And so again, I think it just reflects it. The other thing is it, it made me reflect on this is that I, there's only a few entities that can take this kind of long approach. Berkshire Hathaway probably is another one, given Warren Buffett's very long history of outstanding success. He was in the news as well, saying that although his enterprise had made record profits last year, which is saying something that he anticipated less profits next year, which he's probably said 40 times and it's never happened. So, you know, very interesting that the two long dwelling sort of crisis communication moguls both appearing in the news on the same day. The other thing we were going to talk about just briefly was some of the stuff that's happened at Fox News and and the, the Dominion lawsuit, which we aren't going to talk about, but very clearly critically important for communication people. And that was pretty clearly established um, that Dominion won the case three quarters of a billion dollars, which is a lot of money, but also that Tucker Carlson went down around the same time and just had a few thoughts on that. I don't know, Brady, if you wanted to make any comments about that. Yeah, Mark, I might just circle back on your point about Berkshire Hathaway. So in our in our last episode, we were really looking at the royal family as a uniquely positioned entity to handle a crisis. And I think what you're saying is Berkshire Hathaway would fall into that kind of same same category. And it's a phenomenon I think we'll track over future episodes looking for examples. But I think you're totally right about Warren Buffett kind of being one of those people and his investment firm being an institution that would be hard to rattle short of like some major malfeasance or something, which will not happen, I don't believe. But yes, on Tucker Carlson, Mark, you probably might be know more about his termination, but it sounds like he was found to have made some racist comments in the disclosures that would have been involved in the legal case if the Dominion case had gone to trial. You know, you and I were batting the ball around as well, just saying this is probably good that this person's off the news. So we did find some studies you know, Media Matters for America, a nonprofit watchdog, said that his statements on his show from February to April of 2021, 57% had false or misleading information. The Public Citizen Watchdog also said that from January to July 2020, he made at least 33 false or misleading statements related to the COVID-19 pandemic. We don't have great data on comparing him to other newscasters, but the general sentiment, and I think this data is helpful to say that, is he's just been a significant source of misinformation in the world. And we see that in a continued kind of polarization in American politics. And frankly, we get a bit of that seeping over the border, where I think a lot of our right writer wing family members kind of get swooped up into this, this kind of toxic thinking that he was spouting. And sorry to sound so opinionated on that, but I guess that's what we're here to do is a little bit of opinionating. Yeah, it was interesting. I've I've read this just because I couldn't figure out why Fox decided to terminate him. And it strikes me exactly, as you said, Brady, on the eve of the lawsuit actually getting into the hot and heavy part, somebody became aware of a set of tweets or a set of text messages, or at least one text message. Apparently, in the actual legal proceedings, those text messages were redacted. And so they probably wouldn't have come out. Although, you know, you never know in lawsuits when documents are circulated that weren't meant to be circulated they could have come out reading through them they were pretty inflammatory but clearly to everyone's surprise it looks like fox news itself has a level of this kind of behavior that even it can't tolerate so in addition to settling with dominion voting systems its lawsuit before it really got into the, the the court part of it they also separated waves from tucker carlson which is, I think, quite interesting. And I you know, I think as to agree with what you said, 
I get the impression that a lot of newscasters now in the kind of inflamed news environment of the United States probably are inaccurate on both sides. I must say that I, I stopped looking at the CNN website because it's too histrionic in the other way for me. And now relying mostly on what I think are much more level-headed sites like the BBC to read about U.S. news, because at least they try to present a balanced case of it. Yeah, I wouldn't know, like the guy who was fired the same day was that longtime CNN anchor, Don Lemon, was also terminated in, on CNN at the same day. I don't know if he had a misinformation file, but it, a misinformation claim against him. But on the Tucker case, I mean, from a crisis standpoint, I do feel like Fox News tried to distance themselves from him. And when I saw his statement, his crisis approach seemed to just be that they're they're like, you know, shutting down champions of freedom. He didn't use those words, but that was sort of his vibe. So I don't know how these folks reboot, but he's been handsomely rewarded with a golden parachute, I'm sure, through this termination. So I don't know. I don't know what reputation recovery or crisis communications looks like when you're Tucker Carlson. Do you, do you have any thought on that, Mark? Or like what? Yeah, I, you know, I, it, it is really interesting because it seems to me that, to my surprise, Fox News did what one should do in this circumstance, which is to act quickly and decisively and like really make an effort to make it clear that there's a certain level of behavior that they can't tolerate. And that that's kind of going back to traditional forms of crisis communication, I think. Then you just clam up and let the chips fall where they may. So I was impressed by their thing. I think, again, I haven't really been following what Tucker Carlson himself has been talking about. I suspect he's been talking about this a lot. So we'll have to spend some time investigating that. But more relevant to, I think, our discussion was just the fact that Fox probably did what you need to do to extract yourself from a difficult situation. And that is settle the lawsuit before it caused an enormous social media storm, and then do a risk assessment with respect to the people who are involved and encourage some of them to move along to new career opportunities to distance yourself from the actual event. So I think that was handled pretty well over time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Fox comes out looking quite good. And maybe that's part of some kind of corporate reboot that we'll watch and see. I don't know how they make themselves seem less wacky and a more legitimate news source again. But it strikes me that might be what they're going for. Who's to say? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's nothing. Uh, occasionally, when you're in a hotel, you end up watching Fox News if you want to check the news. And 80% of their news is news. It's the 20% that's a little off. But again, can't watch CNN anymore because 80% of their news is news and the other 20% is wacky as well. So it's not, this is not something that's restricted to any one network. That's right. Probably should move on, that's Brady. Right. So the, I guess the big news of this last week, which is going to be the main feature of the, of the discussion today, is that the World Health Organization declared this past week that, that the COVID-19 was no longer a global health emergency, which represents a big change. In our grand rounds last week, we had a very prominent speaker present his work looking at the molecular epidemiology of the plague over the last 3,000 years. He's a world expert in this. And talking to him beforehand, I said, I see this kind of as an exclamation mark for the department at the end of the COVID pandemic. I must say that you know, I'm glad to see this thing receding off into the distance. I was out for dinner last night for probably the thousandth time was recently on the public transit system in Melbourne, Australia, and nice to actually get back to something that looks completely back to normal, which was something we haven't had for three years. Brady, you've done a fair bit of reading and prep for this. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the the, the, the background issues and where we've gone? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a dense issue. And I that that article this week about the WHO declaring this emergency over is what kind of piqued my interest because 
it, it landed as a bit of a dud to me, that announcement, like it hit all of the news. And like much of the COVID communication as Joe Citizen, I kind of heard it and thought, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean for daily life? So there is a bit of a theory. And so a guy, Daniel Barnett at Johns Hopkins, who talks about a concept called response efficacy. I think we've talked about it on the program before. The idea being that if you communicate a certain way, you're more likely to have people behave the way you want them to. And I know that it's hard in the news cycle for any agency to get a response efficacy message through, but you've really got to tell people what's up, what's in it for them, and then what specifically, what actions you want them to take. And it kind of struck me that through COVID-19, we didn't quite get enough of that, that I, me personally, I didn't metabolize to a sense of knowing really what was going on. And I and I was privileged, Mark, in the sense that you and I've done some work together. I'm I'm connected to an academic health science center. You're a leader. Um, you're a leader in this in this work, but there's some disconnect in the communication that I thought we should dig into. And a lot of the the communicating that happened since 2020 all felt very crisis-y in nature, whether it was Fauci being under fire or other issues. But Mark, before I, I get into maybe a little bit of the way I thought of framing this up, anything you could tell us about your kind of work through the pandemic? Like you you did have some formal international roles with some profile. And I don't know what you can talk about about it, but it'd be interesting, I think, to everyone listening. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I think what I what I did was the some people may remember that at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was noticed that patients who were effectively untreated because we didn't know how to treat them back then suffered a high rate of catastrophic blood clotting complications. And that's what I do for my sort of research. I've done it for a long time. And so I got involved with discussions um, around that, which led then, then led me to being kind of a ex officio member of the World Health Organization COVID-19 Therapeutics Working Group. So I was invited to all the meetings and occasionally asked after the meetings to provide some commentary with respect to um, the uh, the the blood clotting complications. And then when Omicron came along, which I think was kind of the salvation for everybody, a more virulent, or, sorry, a more infectious, less virulent variant, there was a lot of interest about whether or not it was causing blood clotting complications. So I had some stuff to say about that. And then when the vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic thrombocytopenia, or the now now slightly different name, but known as VIT, came along, I got involved pretty early at a bunch of different levels, talking to people about you know what was causing that and how to avoid having that happen. And that has a really important sort of hangover effect insofar as the technology involved in the vaccines that were associated with VIT, which is the adenoviral vaccines, are used in other diseases and likely to continue to be used because they're much less expensive to manufacture than the mRNA vaccines. And so and I think the learnings that we've had from VIT, people say, well, you know, it's over. Well, it's not actually over. The AstraZeneca vaccine is still one of the most widely used vaccines in the world not in North America. You know, I think learning a lot about that was a was a completely useful undertaking. So we had a lot to do with that. And then towards the end, I actually volunteered in our COVID-19 clinic just to get the experience of actually physically looking after patients who had COVID-19 and was really really enjoyed that a lot. The patients were pretty sick and 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 what was amazing is that these drugs that we have now which came onto the scene fairly quickly although they may not have been invented specifically for COVID-19 in some cases are extraordinarily effective. You give these drugs to people and see them the next day and follow up and they would be feeling dramatically better. I think, Brady, you actually give away a little bit of a secret, actually took one of those drugs when you mm -hmm. had it. And other than having a very bad taste in your mouth, which is the usual complication, it, you, know, you, you did not get sick from it, which was impressive. And the people we were seeing in the clinic were people who had had 
immunocompromised states, so liver transplants, kidney transplants, you know, people who could get sick despite vaccination, and all of whom, the ones that I saw, did really well with the vaccine. So, you know, I had a lot of, in, in addition to supervising the people from an academic perspective who provided all of the care to COVID, all the critical care physicians, all the eMERGE physicians, and all the internal medicine people in the region report at least indirectly to me for their academic activities. So I certainly had great eyes on and a lot of time and energy invested into this thing over the last three years. And Mark, I think it goes for both of us that we'd say that we like just disclaimer for folks at home, like I would say we are both adherents or proponents of the kind of medical orthodoxy on this around around vaccines and efficacy. I, I'm not sure about public health measures, but that that was something that struck me that made this quite crisis like. You know, the, the, I, I thought about framing this in the history of public health, you know, coming up around the Industrial Re- Revolution related to overcrowding and poor sanitation and dealing with cholera in London, you know, ju- germ theory by Louis Pasteur in the 19th century. So having a scientific basis to, you know, add, add things like sanitation and vaccination and prevention of infectious diseases um, all the way up to the creation of the World Health Organization in the 20th century. You know, thinking about that, it, this was kind of framed in some circles as though resistance to vaccines was like shaking this kind of system foundation somehow. So public health is a system and that system being shaken. But then interestingly also, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but when you go back and look at it, there was resistance to smallpox in the 19th century on religious and cultural and, and and even political grounds. And then polio in the 20th century, there was some misinformation about efficacy. We've heard a lot about easels vaccine resistance, especially in the UK, where even leading to, to deaths where people got paranoid that it like created autism, for example. And then even HPV, maybe not so much in North America, but in other countries where people think it led to promiscuity. So there, there has always been a kind of someone being a bit skeptical. But what I would say here is in the context of that, it did feel like there was there's something that kind of went on with, with public health in general that that wasn't quite right for me on a communications basis that I think is worth probing. Anything you wanted to add there before I kind of went into that, Mark? No, I, it, it's again. I won't. I won't have much to say. I will say that we. I'm definitely on side with the belief in vaccination. I've had four vaccines. Haven't had COVID somehow that I know of. I'm sure that I've had it. Just didn't test positive. My family all had it. So I. I, I totally, totally on side. The issue of the 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 hesitancy is very interesting to me. I actually fundamentally, deep down inside of me, don't understand why it occurs. I I really don't know what has led to this. Maybe resistance to authority, but you know, there's no question that vaccination got us out of the pandemic. There's no question that vaccination for measles dramatically has dramatically reduced the consequences of measles. There's no question that vaccination for polio has eliminated it as a disease in North America and around the world, with a few exceptions. I just don't, I, I really just don't understand what the problem is, but nor will I ever, because obviously it takes a certain mindset. But I I, I, I think that the reason what we're talking about it here is not to whine and moan about it, but rather to say, you know, what, what's the, what's the long-term messaging that people should get out of this? Why has it, why has this occurred? What, what failed in the communication strategy? How can we avoid having this happen again the next time we have a public health emergency or something else that requires immediate mobilization of the population and because there was an awful lot of energy wasted in the 
dispute about vaccination and its efficacy, which could have been profitably invested invested in public health measures, or you know probably would have gotten out of the whole damn thing six months earlier, if we hadn't spent so much time whining and moaning about vaccine vaccination and how effective it was or ineffective and the dangers of it. Blah 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 blah. Just a big waste of time. Yeah, I think I'd only just comment, Mark, and I, I think there are some studies that might give us some insight, like Edelman, which is a big PR firm, runs this trust barometer every year, I believe, that measures trust in public institutions. And I know that like Pew Research, Gallup, and European Social Survey and others, they, they all kind of point to this decline in our in faith in public institutions. So I think we have a there's been a, over several years, maybe due to the behavior of some public figures, that would be part of my estimation is there's just a dwindling respect for those institutions. Like I, I don't, I, I'd certainly even myself feel differently about the prime ministers we had in the past and the ones we currently have and feel some greater degree of skepticism. So I think that ends up getting applied to, to public health. And then I think I found some things that said that, you know, they, there's, there's good data that shows public health itself didn't help itself. I know maybe we'll have some time to talk about Fauci, but, you know, there's a a journal of the American Medical Association in July article that found inconsistent messaging and guidance from public health agencies in the U.S. Another study in JAMA in August 2020 found there were delays between public health and the public in the early stages. And we will get to that. Maybe I should jump to it sooner. But, you know, Fauci himself was on uh, discouraging masks initially, and then obviously mask became the standard. And I, and again, the the others Journal of Hospital Infection in January 2021 found there was confusion and inconsistency in the use of terminology, and again, just other factors leading to just confusion in the public. So I think also just the speed. Like I don't think people had time to really respond as well as they could have. But I also know just how politicized this did get. You know, we've got some political leaders downplaying the severity and even locally and, and internationally and at the level of the U.S. president, people just really not having a good beat on how serious it was in a consistent or unified way. And, and I I'm, I mean, maybe we point to Trump as well as just being a person who said a lot of foolish things and was a little bit flippant about this and underestimated how serious this uh, the pandemic was and didn't act quickly enough. So, but back to our notion of crisis communications, like communicating about COVID-19 for public agencies is similar to that crisis and that it involves that need for prompt, transparent and effective communication, but it's different because it's prolonged and ongoing and requires sustained communication and so many agencies, like there's so many layers involved in what aggregates in our minds to the, the story of this story, how we process like COVID as a thing and a, as a feeling even. So to me, it's, you know, it's this question of the importance of not just communicating information, but actively engaging with the public, addressing concerns and, and who's doing what. So I don't know if you have any other comments on that, Mark. I'm doing a bit of jazz here, to be honest, because I don't actually have my head around it. But I kind of view what we're doing here as almost like problematizing that as well, like just putting a bunch of sticky notes on the wall, which is literally... Yeah, I think so. So uh, people who don't live in on, if we have any listeners who don't live in Ontario, so we live in Ontario, which is a province in Canada, and we did pretty well through COVID here I, compared to a lot of other jurisdictions, you know, total deaths, deaths in older people were lower than elsewhere. Our hospitals never got overwhelmed. And and to be quite honest, I think one of the reasons why we did pretty well compared to other jurisdictions, both in Canada and certainly in the US, is that that at both a national 
and a provincial level. Brady, you'll remember this at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, whether you love Trudeau or hate him, he was on the news every single day. He had a routine press briefing every single day at the same time in front of the place where he lived. The news showed up. He gave the information of the day. He had the right people there. And oddly enough, in Ontario, where Doug Ford, who belongs to a very different political stripe than than him, also at the start of the pandemic, was on the news every single day, did news conferences, some ridiculous number of daily updates. And, and they became, I think, in Ontario and in Canada, the source of information that people look towards. And, you know, the United States certainly didn't do that. And other jurisdictions certainly didn't do that. And and I think you're right, you know, early on, um, the issue of masking versus not masking caused some controversy. And, and that led to a lingering sense that people didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't that it was just that the evidence changed. And, and, you know, I don't think that happened to the same extent in Canada, and in Ontario, simply because we had Mike Ford or Trudeau telling us what they knew that day based upon people who were actually reasonably competent. In Ontario, they put together something called the Ontario Science Table, which got a group of experts that advised the Premier on what should happen. And so, you know, again, we, we weren't perfect. There's lots of hesitancy. There's still lots of people who are angry about masks. I was at a place the other day, I had a big sign on the wall that said this is a PPE free zone, which I presume was a hangover since nobody in the audience that was there was interested in wearing a mask. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I do think that's a personal protective equipment, Mark. Yeah, PPE is personal protective equipment. Right. The sign had obviously been up for a while. And then the hospitals actually in Ontario allowed unmasking in non-clinical areas very recently within the last couple of weeks. So that's all disappeared as well. So, you know, I think I, I, the, the issue here, there's all kinds of things that we could spend weeks unpacking, but one was having a single source of best quality information. And a lot of jurisdictions didn't have that. And I think we actually had a reasonable approach to that at the start of it, kind of, you know, it, it, as it became a bit drawn out and boring. I think people were less likely to pay attention to those things, but at least initially that was a, I think a victory for Canada and for Ontario compared to other jurisdictions. I, I, you if, know, we went, if we went international though, like I, I, and I know this is, this is probably pipe dream wishful thinking, but you note something that seemed to work in Canada that didn't like, I think a lot about Fauci and his kind of what seems to be damaged reputation in some ways in certain quarters in the U S and the division between him and the and the president at at certain junctures, Trump, like this, the command and control structure of we have a single person who is on the media and delivering that message. You know, it, would this have gone better if the W could the W could even based on all the stratifications of hierarchies, could the WHO have been more more communicative in some way, in a way that affected citizens where there was one consistent message um, throughout the world or throughout North America, for example. So I'm just curious about that. But there's something to me that says there were just so many disparate messages where even some local public health folks were taking different actions in one municipality than another. These these little blips came up as well. Um, but what do you think of that? Like, Yeah, I don't think that that's a good question. I, I don't think that we could have expected the World Health Organization because there's such enormous disparities in the way that countries can deliver healthcare. A good friend of mine in Uganda got COVID, almost died, and you know, there was nothing that he was gonna like the, the the care that he could access was vastly different than the care that we could access here. The so I think the World Health Organization would have had trouble with that. But I do think at a national level, that is absolutely key is to have one of the lessons I'll take away from this is that 
in my own work, and, and I have taken this since then, is that you know when you have some a message that needs to be communicated, it needs to be communicated in a timely fashion, very clearly by a single source of truth, and very frequently less information is better, even though you're tempted to spew out a lot of information. Sometimes it's better just to give the basics. And then if people want to know more, they can ask more. And that sounds like the basics. But to be completely honest, I think that was missed by a lot of places. You know, Anthony Fauci, I, I don't I've, I don't know him. I've never met him. I do know some of the other people in the US government response. And it struck me that there were a lot of people talking in a lot of different directions. Uh, and in, in Ontario, it seemed to me that, you know, the, the people who were the equivalent of him, obviously not in terms of augustness, but who had the same kind of job were all speaking through the premier, which was a much more organized approach to doing it. Also, they, you know, there is there is a left-right divide in Canada, and it's probably getting somewhat worse compared to the past. But I'm currently binging on an extraordinarily long set of podcasts on the history of the English language, and certainly say that a loss of faith in government is something that's occurred <laughs> with distressing frequency over the last two thousand years. And there's nothing unique or weird about the times we live in right now. It's just you know, there's psych cycles where people trust authority and cycles where people don't trust authority. And you're less likely to get burnt at the stake right now if you don't trust authority than in the past. So I suppose things have moved forward to some extent. I wonder, Mark, on that, you, like you, you're mentioning something that just had a neuron firing for me. There's there's a dynamic shift in in the way like media has not just like, like our sources of information as people has has not just fragmented, but metastasized into a bunch of weird channels, you know, during the polio during polio, you know, we had like your local newspaper, maybe a national newspaper, maybe the occasional address by the president. And now it's all all kinds of media all the time. And there's something in this for me. I think I have an intuition of some kind that I think our public health communications need to look at that very carefully to figure out how we rise to the occasion and not just be another voice when a pandemic like this hits. So I don't know if it's like that they should have privileged channel access on on social media and in media in general because of the noisiness of it. Like if we actually believe in public health as a system that is still has a valuable function to keep us all safe. I don't know how much better things would have gone, but there is certainly a lot of discord. And I mean, I, I don't think we had as much resistance in Canada and Ontario. We seem to be pretty compliant sheep for the most part. We performed better. But there were those rumblings, for example, of the scientific advisory table in Ontario not actually agreeing with the premier and the premier overruling them. And there was some of that friction. But then we, we get a, a really good kind of report card ultimately on the pandemic handling. But something about how strangely this became what's the real info is, is really peculiar to me and how divided people were and how vitriolic that became. And how easily someone like a Fauci or others could be just disregarded tells me that, I don't know, there, there, there might be a need for a call for a, some maybe stronger regulation for public health communication in some way. Yeah, maybe. I think if you, if you try to force that on people, you're just going to get more pushback, right? And more disbelief. Again, I, I don't know what the final number in Ontario was of people who've had three vaccinations or more, but it's an insane fraction of the population. I do think one thing that social media does is it amplifies a tiny group of people so that people think, oh my goodness, there's a large body of people who were anti-vax. Actually, there weren't. It was a handful of 
people and and you know the the number of pickup trucks with flags driving around on them right now is slowly diminishing even now but i just saw one yesterday one of them still around so you know <laughs> but it, it's a it's one in a thousand it yes. may have been one in a hundred or two in a hundred they just tend to get a lot of airplay because the media is looking for something to talk about other than covid19 mark maybe we should take a quick break do you want to take five and- yeah yeah So welcome back to the program. We are looking at COVID-19 through the prism of crisis communications and trying to unpack this this tiramisu of issues and communications across North America and fractured political environments and perspectives. So Mark, I think we're going to spend a little bit more time on the Canadian perspective. And I'm sure our US friends will call us out on our bias by thinking that maybe we did things a little better. I'm not sure we're actually saying that. And by the way, I have, a, I have a friend from the UK, I didn't realize this, who pointed out, and I think you may be guilty of this too, Mark, that I have a Canadian accent, and I wasn't aware of that. But apparently when I say about, it sounds much different than about, which is how an American might say that. So I wasn't aware that you and I may may not do as well on a podcast if we have our our Canadianizations of the outs. Is I, Are you aware of this phenomenon? Oh yeah, for sure. I, in fact, I was just in Australia two weeks ago, and uh, I said to the guy I was eating dinner at a restaurant in Sydney, and talking to the guy who was serving me, and I said the difference. In, uh, I said uh, Australians and Canadians are very similar. We just have a funny accent because Canadians have a very odd accent when when you talk to other people. It's 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 a it's a very generic way of speaking English. But there's a there's a number of words that we use that in a way we use them. There's also terms that we use that very few. That are only that are fairly Canadian specific. Of course, just like anybody with an accent or speaking quirks, we it's normal to us, so we don't perceive them. Here, here I thought all this time I sounded like George Clooney, and it turns out I sound like my Newfoundland fishing heritage, really. So I had no idea. I had no idea. But but best we embrace it. So yeah, maybe we'll run down like there were some big big events in Canada on just the flow of how information and our approaches took shape, I think is worth noting. So we really heard about. COVID for the first time from the Public Health Agency of Canada, like similar, like like public health and other jurisdictions noted, Wuhan, China had this kind of outbreak. And then in March, WHO declared this global pandemic, prompting us to take measures to limit the spread. And that's about when Trudeau started the daily press briefings. And then also, you know, we by, by June, there was already some brewing criticism, interestingly, where the chief public health officer, Teresa Tam, was criticized for her initial messaging on masks as well, which she downplayed. But as you said, Mark, this might have just been as part of the evolution of our understanding of the of the virus. Like initially, folks were weren't as bullish on masks as where we landed. Uh, but again, that th- these little things where there's maybe a misstep. I do think it, there there are paranoid people that saw that as oh, masking is a way of control. Like I'll frequently heard that this is a freedom issue. Masking is a way of controlling us. We're going to become a communist country. So it's it's interesting how these little things, these little threads that aren't fully articulated enough or repeated enough by the public officials can metastasize into some weird thinking. But anyway, we'll park that. July 2020, the government launched a COVID-19 exposure notification app called COVID Alert. So Bluetooth that notified folks if you'd been in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. I never used that, Mark. Did you use it or... I, I, we all had it. My family had it downloaded on our phone. Other than getting reminders when my Bluetooth was turned off, I didn't get any notifications from it. Okay, but I guess we weren't. All, most of us weren't out and about too much. 
that was a Canadian out and about. <laughs> so then, yeah, public awareness campaign in September 2020, using all multi-channel media to promote public health guidelines. So again, this this seems like a good a good and uh, attempt at comprehensive communication. In December 2020, Health Canada approved the vaccine and Prime Minister and other officials received it publicly. And we saw lots of folks, uh, including hospital leaders that you and I know, everyone who could get their hands on the vaccine that was in a kind of public leadership role seemed to want to do that on camera. And I think that was good for bolstering uptake. We had some vaccine delays and that was, that did cause some government criticism, some criticism of the government on our procurement strategy and calls for more transparency and communication about vaccine distribution. The AstraZeneca vaccine got suspended because of some rare blood clotting and Mark, you're, you're modest, but as a world-renowned hematologist as you are, I don't know if you're the most renowned, but probably pretty darn close. I'm sure that was why you uh, you were included in 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 discussions about that at the WHO level. But those blood clotting events led to some confusion about the vaccine safety. Again, that might have been another opportunity to communicate more about the safety. And again, I don't know if we'll get into that in great detail, but I I want to flag that one and see if we can get back to it. And then you know the the in May 2021 we had some restrictions removed and we did we did go through some some movement of restrictions are on and off again and lockdown is partly over or not so we've that that leads us up to the end of may and and obviously that saga continued so how did how did canada perform on international data when it came to compliance or just outcomes related to covid management yeah so great question brady so johns hopkins university had a website which they maintained for three years which tracked probably the most reliable source. And I've got the final data in front of me here. So deaths per 100,000 population. So the US was the second worst in the world amongst major countries with a death rate of 341 per 100,000 or 0.31 per 34%. Sort of the, the countries that did poorly on public health, Brazil, over 300, Poland, over 300. Italy over 300 deaths per 100,000, but they got hammered right at the start. And they have a particular problem in that not only did they were they sort of ground zero, but they were also, they have a very elderly population. So they were particularly hard to hammer. Many, many European countries were over 200 per 100,000. Canada was did pretty well, 135 per 100,000. So significantly less than 50% lower than the US. So for every two deaths in the United States, there was less than one death in Canada. So, no, Canada did, 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 you know, in terms of metrics, death per 100,000 population, Canada did pretty well and even did well compared to many countries that have on average younger populations. So, you know, the Western nations, the high income countries tend to have older populations. So they're more prone to suffer complications from COVID-19. So, you know, whether you, whether you like the way that Canada dealt with it or you don't, Canada did really well compared to peer countries in Europe and, and the United States. I will say that, that the messaging about masking continues to be controversial even to today. And the difficulty, the reason why it's controversial is just, it's really hard to do studies. You know, anybody who's worked in a COVID clinic, like I have a couple of times, would would laugh in the face of someone who said masks don't work. Like I was actually examining patients with active COVID a month ago, six weeks ago, and what was protecting me was a face shield, N95 mask, gloves, and rigorous hand washing. And again, to my knowledge, Despite being bathed in COVID, I didn't get it from them. So, you know, I I I think the the issue around 
masking in particular is more about how good a study you can actually do, not whether or not masks work. I think that kind of on the ground, I mean, Mark, that's a powerful anecdote in and of itself. So maybe there is a learning here as we tabulate some learnings that that kind of on, and I, I know there was lots of footage on the news from clinics, but someone giving a testimony like that is is very interesting in the face of of the, you know, d- deniers of, of mask efficacy. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I personally attest for the fact that I was some person who came in had they wondered if they had thrush in their mouth so you know they had had they had active covid it was positive the day before they had active symptoms and i examined their mouth which is probably you couldn't get a higher risk thing to do and didn't get covid and that was you know entirely the vaccinations reduced my likelihood of getting infection but certainly didn't prevent it but i didn't get covid from it so i was that was extremely positive so Mark, I wonder we 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 thought about talking more about the Ford government but I wonder if maybe we actually just jumped to discussing our our findings and what we kind of think about this. So yeah, that, I think that would be a great idea that we I think best practices are really important for us to get out of this and and you know, who knows if we'll have another pandemic but it's very likely we'll have another public health or you know some other form of emergency that will happen in the next you know over our lifetimes and I think we should we should we better learn a lot more from this so that we can be do better next time. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, Mark, we talked. I, like, I don't know how I don't know how realistic my and I haven't given it much thought, frankly. But this proposal I have around beefing up public health communications protocols involving media to do that, I think that would be enormously helpful. So I don't know how we could do that more as a society. But I go back to public health and that heritage of why it was created and its value as a system, like to have it competing with Tucker Carlson for advice to the public, for example, like there, we have to have some standards and maybe, maybe I, I sound like a, maybe I sound like an authoritarian in some way, but I think there, there must be some way of authenticating and bolstering communications more effectively and it shouldn't necessarily just mean that public health budgets have to balloon, which is which is the risk and probably why it hasn't happened. So I know that's something just as we've talked that's that sticks out to me. Another one, Mark, and I, I wonder how you feel about this as a best practice, but and, and I'll give the example, but like communicate more is 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 powerful. So I remember running a file where it was a very controversial long period of time at a hospital. A lot of things had not been going well. And we struck a media advisory committee. So instead of just going to the editorial board of one paper, which you would normally do in a very serious situation, you'd go and have your leadership meet them and do a longer Q&A. We actually started hosting a weekly meet. This, this situation was so serious. We were hosting a weekly meeting with the media of this region. And so the editors of the newspaper and some of their top investigative reporters would come and they would meet with us. And and my approach in this was to be as open and transparent as possible, which we were able to do given in those circumstances, but also let them run their greyhound, so to speak, let them ask all the questions possible. And we would literally hold those meetings for as long as they took. So if they wanted to stay asking us questions for three hours, we stayed the three hours. And over time, the utility of those meetings to them d- diminished. So we were highly scrutinized. And then within a few weeks, we were probably winding down that media advisory committee or that media interface committee. But another one on that front is, you know, where where we can get Q&As out to the public more and more forcefully. That's something I've also done in the past. I know I know that was widely used here, but I think that 
something, for example, on the issue of of the blood clotting and AstraZeneca, was there enough on communicating about why it's safe? So people just heard that in the blip of all the news. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm in the I'm in the gym every morning on the rowing machine, and it's like City Pulse is our local Toronto kind of daily news thing, and it's just like machine gun peppering of news stories. And so again, to have COVID valuable COVID information about that just only occupying the exact same space as like spaying and neutering puppies or a financial scandal, like it's a different order of information. And I don't know how to, you know, I don't know what I'm percolating on here, but that's something that's occurring to me here. Yeah, I think so, so the strategy of communication is something that the, the 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 fire hose of information is flowing at people from all different directions nowadays in a way that it didn't in the past. And and so you I, I think more information is better. I think if people flip on the TV and see somebody communicating about it and they flip on the TV three hours later and they see someone communicating about it and they flip on the TV eight hours later and they see someone communicating about it, they're going to start to think that that person either has like a, you know, needs a day job or they actually are invested in trying to tell them what's going on. And I suspect they will start to believe and trust that person quite a bit more. So I think, you know, learning. So the first one is single so is, is to have make sure that the message is as consistent as you can make it. The second one is like give out a lot of information. Make it very clear that it doesn't appear that you're hiding anything because appearing to hide things is is just not going to be good. And then the third thing I would say that it's is is you've got it here on the thing is empathy. And that is, you know, people are really, really worried. They're really, really upset. They feel that they're being imposed upon. They don't like the government doing this, that, and other things to them. But in reality, understand that, you know, getting confrontational with them is not going to help. In fact, it's going to be worse. It's going to worsen it. So realize that pe- what drives and motivates people varies a lot between individuals. I think that's a great way. Um, you've got next on the list here, Brady, two-way communication. Again, I think providing people with the opportunity to ask questions is critically important. A lot of people tried to do that during the pandemic. There was a podcast called TWIV, uh, This Week in Virology, which I listened to a lot, had a lot of great information was listening to them a couple of weeks ago and and uh, they were getting a bit moany because someone from the US government said well we didn't have enough communication from the science community and and these guys from TWIV were talking about how they'd spent you know they'd done a thousand episodes or something it was great information i listened to it religiously but i can tell you they weren't talking at a level that the average frontline person is going to be able to understand, nor is the average frontline person going to tune into a podcast called This Week in Virology, right? They, <laughs> they, that, that's, it's the right message at, at, at the wrong level through the wrong conduit. And so, you know, establishing communications that are two-way at a level that people are actually going to understand is super important. You got two more points there, Bray. We probably should just keep an eye on the clock. So you've got, you want to cover the last two points? Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, we talked about just that that flexibility. So adjustments are are critical. Like, the, I think everyone's got to be like nimble footed, and I think these things all kind of hold together together. Like, I don't think it's just oh, if you had more flexibility, this would go better. I think it's you've got to have those other four things you mentioned: transparency, consistency, empathy, two way communication. In that matrix, flexibility, and then and then collaboration. So these public health agencies. It all speaks to that, I guess, that higher point I'm percolating on or we're both thinking about if like, ultimately, this would have gone better if the stakeholder, the public health agencies, governments, providers, and, 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 and including the public, this was all kind of, it all kind of gelled a bit better. So co- some level of collaboration, and I don't know how you formalize these networks, 
But I really think it's worth thinking about. And it'd be interesting to have a public health person who's thinking at a policy level about this in to talk about that at some point. So I don't know if we'll have another, maybe we'll call this a public health communication series and have another episode at some point. Yeah, great idea. So to summarize, just as we wrap up here, your your points, I think I'll just run through them quickly, are transparency, consistency, empathy, two-way communication, flexibility, and collaboration. And you know those sound like kind of something that you should be doing all the time. But if we look at some of the failures of COVID-19, you can see errors that occurred in multiple different points on that by multiple different people. And unfortunately, I'm very convinced that, that some of those faults contributed to the problems that we saw with COVID-19 and, and the widespread um, pushback around some of the measures that were undertaken for the disease. So Brady, we probably should wrap up just looking at the time here. Any last minute comments for the people listening? I don't have anything, Mark, except thank you. Thanks for joining me on this. This And, and you know, I, th- I think this episode was a bit of an experiment. There was an intuition we both had about this issue. It's not firmly a crisis issue. But there's lots to unpack here, and I think we could have gone much deeper as well. So I, I think public health communication itself is is worthy of, of another episode with us and look forward to that in the future. Yeah, great. Thanks, Brady. And yeah, we'll try to get the next one out within a more reasonable length of time compared to what we did over this one. This one has just been way too long, but the reality is of life. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Okay. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.